Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavyhops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. The mother of uh, one of the musicians in one of the leading bands. Uh, and uh, it turned out that she had like hundreds of newspapers clippings from mostly about concerts and tours. And she wanted us to have them. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. My name's Sam. This is Umeå Hardcore Part 3, Documenting a Movement. An important part of Sweden's democratic evolution over the 19th and 20th centuries is the involvement of its people in social movements, popular movements, and non-official associations. By organizing themselves in groups, people could more effectively figure out what they wanted to change in society. Popular movements taught them to organize, how to make decisions collectively, and what was needed to enforce a change. In simple terms, a popular movement has its foundation in a larger group of people gathered to drive a common issue, which has often led to the formation of associations. Looking at Umeå Hardcore through this lens, as Johannes and Mark laid out in parts one and two, during the 90s, it was a larger group of people gathered to drive a set of social and political concerns. To help us gain a richer understanding of how this movement touched people on a daily basis in Umeå and beyond, we spoke with Suzanne Odell, an archivist at the Popular Movement Archive in Västerbotten County, where Umeå is located. Together with colleague Karen Holmgren, Suzanne is responsible for the collection and documentation of the movement from 1989 to 2000 for the Umeå Hardcore Archive. We discuss the purpose of the archive, what is in it, and what stories the artifacts tell us. We also discuss how she accounts for silences, voices of participants not heard or seen in the many posters, cassettes, DHS tapes, newspaper clippings, and merchandise held in the collection. If you've not already listened to parts one and two and want some background, you can find them on our website at scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Susan, welcome to Heavy Hops. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And you are an archivist at the Popular Movement Archive in the north of Sweden, Västerbotten, and you're from Umeå, uh, the city of much discussion in, in this series, obviously. Um, and together with uh, colleague uh, Karen Holmgren, you are the initiator of the documentation of the Umeå Hardcore uh, Archive and are responsible for collection and documentation. Yes. So, um, how did you find the hardcore movement and how would you characterize your involvement as a youngster? Yeah, as I said, I think that just by growing up in Umeå during that time in the 90s, you heard of the movement. Um, either you had friends that went to the concerts or you heard about it at school. And for me, I grew up in a village about 10 kilometers from Umeå. Uh, and when we started the um, 
high school and that was when I was 13. Uh, you were also allowed to go to the youth centers and at the youth, youth centers they arranged concerts and I guess that was when I get in contact with the, with the music. I went to the concerts, discovered that I liked the music and the atmosphere and some of my friends did too so we started going together um yeah um how familiar were you with the social side of the music movement at this point or was were they not even connected for you at the time it kind of came hand in hand um of course at first it was the music but during the same time people started talking more and more about like animal rights, about um, being vegetarian or vegan. More and more kids at school uh, changed their food preferences. Um, so I think, yeah, they came at the same time. Yeah. Cool. Were you... we, we talked about it a lot. Uh -huh. Yeah. Were you able to change the school lunches so that they started serving vegetarian options? <laughs> Actually, they did, yeah. Oh, man. I, I think they, they, they started it even when I, when I started high school. I think that option already was there. Yeah, but, but they, they discussed it a lot. Um, or adults wasn't always that fond of the idea maybe, but, but they, they served vegetarian, at least they, they, they served vegetarian food and I think they served vegan food at my school too, yeah. That's awesome, I love that. <laughs> and um, so this was, some, this was a movement that was definitely uh, youth driven in a lot of ways and it was something that uh, seemed as though uh, was a common, thing that you talked about uh, among friends. Uh, how did your how did your family feel about you going to the shows and how did they feel about uh, you eating vegetarian lunches at, at school? <laughs> I guess they were supportive. They they drove us to the shows. Um, since they, there were no buses um so we couldn't take the bus into a mill because we lived in a small village uh, so they drove us there they picked us they picked us up and uh, when i wanted to be a vegetarian they yeah they they said okay and they <laughs> helped me with the dinners but then at that time i was like 15 16 years old so i could help a bit myself with the food um but they yeah they drove us there and they never asked us I, I think just because since it was at the youth centers it felt kind of safe there were adults there it was drug free i mean there was a great place to go mm -hmm. Um, within within the youth centers, were there other activities that you participated in apart from going to shows? 
we went there just to hang out. It was a like a place to to meet friends, but um, I don't think I ever. Part there were more options, but I didn't participate in those. But I went there uh, just to hang out with friends to take a Swedish fika, you know. The how often did parents um, attend these shows with their kids or was it usually a drop and go situation? Yeah, it, it was a, I think it was mostly a drop and go. They, they drove us there and they picked us up afterwards. But then of course, maybe there were parents there. My didn't stay. They never would have listened to the music. <laughs> but, but I remember in the hardcore archive, the, we have this um, video clipping from a local uh, TV station where they interview an American band that um, came to Umeå. And I, I think it was Ignite. And the singer in the band describes, like, when he watches out of the audience, and all he sees is youngsters and braces and in the background there's mom and dad waiting to pick the kids up and it was kind of an extraordinary situation because <laughs> they were used to play for an elder public than that mm -hmm. um i mean when when the shows ended there were cars outside waiting in line to pick the kids up I imagine it like the buses waiting to pick up all the kids after school just lined up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now you are working in uh, in the archive. Mm -hmm. What kind of geared you academically towards uh, archiving or like these types of studies? Yeah, I, I started. Um, at the university, I studied ethnomusicology because I thought it sounded fun. And then during during one class, we got to visit a local archive that preserved dialects and folklore, uh, including music, mostly folk music and jazz. But yeah, I I, I thought it was interesting. It combined my interests in like local history and, and the ethnology and narratives and it was mostly the what do you say the uh, like this, the spoken cultural heritage um, mm -hmm. the uh, oral history I, yeah mm -hmm. yeah and I, I thought it was interesting and I, I thought that I would like to work there so when I got my a master's degree in ethnology. I contacted them and then I got the chance to to have a temporary position at that archive. Uh, I started documenting and collecting narratives and then I, I kind of stayed there and I learned more and more about being an archivist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Talk about uh, going from folk and jazz to studying and archiving hardcore music. You're covering a very broad spectrum here. Yeah. Um, how, how did the opportunity to start covering 
the Umeo scene over over your previous job? Um, well, when I when I started documenting at the archive, I started a project uh, where I interviewed female female musicians, and and then I ended up talking to a lot of women that were started playing during the like the seventies and the eighties. And I talked to many elder people, and I found myself. You you often wished that you had been like ten years earlier to talk with people, um, and uh, but I I started thinking about what you could gain if you would talk to people a bit earlier, and. Uh, uh maybe wondered a thought more about me growing up and the whole hard, hardcore scene and what it had meant to both Umeå and for myself and others in my age mm -hmm. and uh, that it would be important to to document it and to do it in time to try to talk to people before they were old and maybe had forgotten things or lost the, mm. the papers and photographs and everything that you want to see. Is there something you enjoy about obtaining like artifacts, whether they're physical or whether they're like oral history? Yeah, no, no, yeah. Um, I, I like the preserving, like the thought of, um, it's a way of preserve the history of the ordinary people by saving all these things. You, you won't just show the, the history of the, the big events. You'll show the history of the ordinary people. You can show the history of the, the kids, the youth, the ones that you usually don't talk about maybe. Um, and um, at Folkehuis um, Archivet, the popular movement, movements archive, we um, the popular movements refer to like the things that organize apart from the governmental institutions uh, in order to bring social change. So Sweden has had a strong tradition of involvement in popular movements, like associations, uh, by organizing themselves in groups. Uh, people could um, figure out what they wanted to change in society. Um, and also an important part of that was to teach people how to organize themselves, how to keep like have meetings um to figure out what's needed to like make a change in society um, and at our archive i think that's shown by by collecting all this material 
you can show how the society changes and what's happened and what and what um, what people want to to do uh, instead of just the things that are produced by the governments by the corporations because they save things too they collect and they they have to preserve their documents but at an archive like the popular movement archive you preserve the things that the people themselves want to preserve for the future what they had thought was important and that's something that kind of yeah that's something that i i like the idea of that that it was created on the initiative of the popular movements themselves uh, and we have like officially been assigned to receive and preserve documents from these popular movements in the county of Westerbotten. And um, so we have like documents from all the social, traditional social movements, like the free church, the temperance movements, the labor movements, but also the uh, yes, like the athletics societies family archives, different cultural uh, groups, can be music, theater, everything that have um, the people have been doing on their, their spare time. And mm -hmm. yeah, it feels like a, a important part of our history. Uh, it's like uh, all of these archives, all of these different archives are pieces in a puzzle, a way for people to be able to study our history and what has happened in Umeå, in Västerbotten, and maybe in, in Sweden uh, by looking at all small pieces of paper. Uh, but then of course it's, very important to to see how representative these collections are whose story do we tell is there somebody missing um how what what can we do to include them and then yeah maybe it's like the ones that won't come and many of the societies they, they come and leave their documents at Folkhälsarkivet, that some of them don't know about us. And like um, the hardcore movement, nobody came to leave tapes or anything. So we had to do something about it. Uh, because otherwise this wouldn't have been, maybe this wouldn't have been, been uh, preserved. And then mm -hmm in 20 or 30 years maybe there wouldn't have been that much left so that's mm -hmm. why the long the long answer of what i why i think it's important to preserve things like that yeah. mm -hmm. A absolutely i think that archives are important uh for local history and the oral history aspect is super important as well. And 
the fact that it can color national narratives and bigger overview history in a way that big history can't get into those details and can't see uh, normal people's experience. And um, that's that's an important, le- that's one way that you can look at history as well is by looking at it through the common people's perspective um, and what they've experienced and archives gives you an, a, a crucial insight into that because it's their records instead of the yeah. records of them. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so uh, just so that we can make sure we have like our timeline right here. So you joined the popular movement uh, archive before or after the hardcore archive started? Mm-hmm. Just uh, before, during my time at the archive of the dialects and folklore in Umeå, uh, as I told you, I started to think about documenting the hardcore movement. And um, I was talking to uh, my colleague, Karin Holmgren. She, at the time, she worked at another archive. And I told her about my ID. And, uh, she had been thinking about the same time. She's the same age as me and uh, went to the same school. So she, she was well aware of the, the whole hardcore scene. Um, and then when she got a job as an archive manager at the Popular Movement Archive, we thought that it would be a good time to try to get some external funding to start this project documenting the hardcore scene and uh, well, it worked. So I was in, in, in 2011, I became employed in the project. Uh, and uh, the goal was to create this research base and to add like a previously missing element of the cultural and social movement history of Umeå to, to the archive. Mm-hmm. Um, and out of curiosity, uh, what steps did you have to take in order to get funding for this, uh, for this idea? Um, I imagine it was more than just, I have a piece of paper, give me money so I can collect uh, <laughs> videotapes of refused. <laughs> yeah, my Karin, she, she wrote a great uh, application. Mm-hmm. And that was it. She she mm-hmm. wrote um, an application to uh, the Swedish National Archives. They had kind of a money you could you could what do you say you could send in applications to have this money for a project. I mean, I would say like disbursement of funds, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, they liked the idea. Um, at that, that time, I think many, there are archives like the Popular Movements Archive in the whole Sweden, one for each county. Uh, and I think many had started to think about how to preserve like the history of more modern popular movements. Um, how are we gonna preserve history that from the societies that have not produced protocols, not, they have no organized documentation. So 
I, I, I guess our application was done at the right time. Mm -hmm. You always have to have a little luck to, uh, <laughs> to, to, to win bids like that, I yeah. assume. <laughs> um, and how, after you've collected everything, uh, or when the project kind of became a public thing, how was that re received, uh, whether it was in the academic community or by the public, how was it kind of received? It was well received by our colleagues. They were, uh, many were curious about the way we worked, how and maybe why. Uh, working at an archive, you usually won't go out making interviews or like collecting like that. Um, and I mean, at the beginning, of course, we wondered what people would say when we came and asked them to, to leave their uh, video tapes and their photographs. But um, I think when we explain what the popular movement archive is and why we want to preserve things, uh, people started to donate things and it felt like there were a lot of people that uh, wanted it to be gathered like that so they they would eas more easily access it mm -hmm. and and i th i think um as both you and sam kind of alluded to you're collecting uh artifacts from a very very young movement that's still well within our within our lifetimes and the lifetimes of you know anyone that is visiting at this point too for the most part and so that's that's a that's an interesting component to this that's different from uh collecting archives from a movement from like the 50s or earlier than that uh as well um so uh, thinking about uh, starting this project, like where did you look for uh, for uh, artifacts? How did you identify people to speak with? How do you like, you've got the funding for the project, you're ready to like take on the world and tell this great story that you lived a as a part of. Uh, who do you go to and um, what were some of those conversations uh, with people like? Well, first of all, we like made announcements in social media. Uh, we asked for the the materials. We asked for contacts, but um, it was combined combined with our own like connections, people we knew, and uh, either the one either friends or people we knew had been involved in the scene. Uh, Umeå's not that big of a city, so uh, it wasn't that hard to, to find the people. Um, in the beginning, quite early, we were contacted by the mother of uh, 
one of the musicians in one of the leading bands. Uh, and uh, it turned out that she had like hundreds of newspapers clippings from mostly about concerts and tours. And she wanted us to have them. And uh, soon after, her son, David Sandstrom, the drummer, and refused because I, I, I guess maybe she, she asked him to also, but, but we contacted him and it turned out he had a lot of uh, stuff. He had like an old archive at his house and he wanted to donate it. So, so those two persons meant a lot because uh, I think after they had uh, donated these things and we had like a quite a lot of archival it was easier to ask others to do the same um, and of course then I started to make interviews with the people associated to the hardcore scenes uh, musicians we tried to talk to parents to youth leaders animal rights activists, the, even the, the poli a policeman that had been uh, involved during that time. Uh, and I think by talking to these people and then them talking about the project to others made it even easier to, to find new ones. When I talked to one person, I asked that one, do you have any, anyone you think I could, I could or should contact? to talk about this or that and then I get got more names either to to make an interview or to collect stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you found the proud mothers who were happy to give <laughs> to give you all of the things bestow upon you the collections of their children and yeah. that escalated into uh conversations with people that were really involved from a lot of sides too. It wasn't just participants in the movement, but people who uh, were you know, police officers or even uh, politicians as well, I assume. Like it's a broad, it's a broad spectrum of people who um, have different perspectives on the events as well. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, it felt important to, to give that like a broad picture of the movement. Um, to get those various perspectives since I mean for from many people in Sweden uh, when they heard about the hardcore movement maybe they thought about the animal activists and and they didn't know about the, the music scene or uh, and vice versa so, so it felt important to get all of that because I, you can't really talk about just the hardcore scene in Umeå during the 90s without also talking about the animal rights movement or talking about the, the vegetarians or vegans at the mm -hmm. same time. It was all connected one way or another. Not not like everyone that went to shows, of course, not everyone were animal rights activists or 
not everyone were vegan. Some were there just for the music and some of the animal rights activists. I mean, not mm -hmm. all of them, of course, were into the music, so. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's something that you lived through as well and that you were a participant in. So it, it, it creates an interesting perspective that you see all these things connected because you were actually a part of that movement in some way. Um, and so it, it'll, it may be interesting to see how people look at this much later from the vantage point of 100 years from now when we, we may be we may have a different way of looking at history as well too uh but for the moment to show these things as interconnected um separates this hardcore movement from a lot of other heavy music movements in sweden um if you look at uh, movements that are like popularized globally like uh, uh death metal coming from stockholm mm -hmm. and you look at like the gothenburg uh gothenburg's twist on uh, on death metal as well, or, uh, I mean, there's a vibrant black metal scene as well from the north of Sweden, but this is the only one that is really kind of tied up with a political movement, with a social agenda as well, and with, um, with a strong youth component as well, too. Um, so it, yeah. Um, when, I just love the visual of mom coming with like her box of things that her kid gave you. It feels like a big uh, jar of cookies and she's just leaving crumbs for you to follow. That, there's nothing more cozy than that in my yeah. mind. Yeah. Um, you know, it was it was really great talking to her also because uh, when I made the interview and when we collected all these uh, clippings, I mean, she was, she was, uh, I think it was really, really important during the 90s um, for the music scene. And she, she arranged venues for gigs. She helped the kids with the rehearsal rooms. And not only for her own sound, she helped a lot of different bands. Um, and I think just by being that adult that helped the, the youngsters to do what they wanted. It's very sympathetic of her. I, I think it's great. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, someone that is like a facilitator in, in a sense, you know, she's mm -hmm. uh, uh, helping kids network and she's providing a safe environment for them as well or ensuring some kind of safety. Uh, because it's something that her kids involved in and her kids' friends are as well. Um, I think that that's one thing that's very, that makes a lot of the development of this scene unique from hardcore movements in other parts of the world, like especially in the U.S., where uh, there may be youth component, but there's also uh, other sides to it where because they're not from small towns, it, it lacks that very kind of like cozy, homey aspect of it. Um. Yeah, and, and, and also the part, I mean, since um, all the shows often were at the youth centers and that they were um, drug-free, I mean, 
that made that made it possible for the for for kids to go there. I mean, there were there were kids that were from like twelve or thirteen years old up to the ones that were twenty five and the spectra during a concert. Uh, and for parents to to leave their kids, I mean, it was as a youth center. It was very safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there were a very positive thing about about that. I guess another positive aspect to a drug free uh, environment is that you can get good quality audio and visual because you're not drunk and impaired, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so when uh, when uh, uh, David's mother comes with all of her with her box of items, how do you uh, take a look at all these things and find what you actually want to keep? Uh, you know, some things may be duplicates of other things that you have, um, but you you don't have all the space in the world to keep things. And how do you balance the value that like you may perceive on a personal level because you've actually been involved in this movement to the purpose of what you're trying to do uh, like academically or intellectually with the movement? Yeah, <laughs> my problem is I like saving things. So. <laughs> but but in our in our daily work, we we of course we focus on the things we are supposed to take care of, and uh, the the documents or the things that we collect, them mostly are originals. I mean, if you compare it with a library where you have a lot of the same books. We don't want the prints. We want the the handwriting. We want the things that are unique. So of course we try to to see if the things are possible to find in another archive. We won't say that at the Popular Movement archive. But uh, when it comes to the hardcore archive, I mean we we have fanzines. And I'm sure there are more than one of some of those fan scenes left, but we don't know where. And I mean, there's no like fan scene library, no one who collects all of them. So we decided that as long as um, they were connected to the Umeå hardcore scene, um, or that they were about bands from other countries when they were playing in Umeå, or as long as it was about the bands from Umeå playing in other places and during the 90s, we were going to collect them. Uh, we had to to make that those boundaries because of course, I mean, there's a hardcore scene after um year of 2000 but we couldn't collect it all so we we choose to take like the most vibrant years where a lot of things happened um but then yeah we, we took a lot we we saved a lot mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and when you uh, when you're receiving uh, when you're receiving items from from folks, um, do you uh, do you receive items that may actually be more applicable for another association? Uh, or for like another initiative within the uh, popular movement? Yeah, sometimes. Um, and we always, if we can, connect things with an association or something, of course, we, we try to to do that. Sometimes um, in the archive, I mean, that. When we take things now, we, we look at the the archivals, the things that are donated or the things that we are preserving. Um, we, we value it and we look at it with our eyes today, but we're, we are very aware of that in like maybe only five or 10 or 20 years, someone will take those documents, look at them and have a, a totally different opinion. I think I told you earlier about uh, us finding like documents associated to the female, female suffrage movement. Uh, and we weren't aware of that we had it in the archive. We thought that there were nothing left. But then one day while we were looking at another archive, we found these documents and of course it was fantastic. And I think it will be the same thing with the hardcore collection that we have saved it for one reason, but then maybe in a few years, someone will see other things in it too. Uh, mm. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I had a question. When someone comes to you with a box of stuff, when they hand that over to you, how much do you alter those contents or do you leave them be it and catalog them in a way that it's preserved in the way that the person gave to you? Or is there like, manipulation on your end as the archivist on how to catalog it? Uh, we we tend to, to save it like it was when it was handed in to us. Um, you don't start to like rearrange things unless you are going to work with the whole archive and make it um, I don't know the English word. You have to sort it. You have to go through it. So, so there it takes so much time. So instead, we try to leave it as it is, and and like keep the the order that's already there, because just by glancing at like the papers. If you start moving things around, you may destroy an order that's already mm -hmm. there because you don't have the, the knowledge about it yet. Mm -hmm. 
and that that collection is a story in itself too. The right. the items, when when you decontextualize them, yeah. you you you're intentionally putting them into a story that you're imagining yeah. versus the story that is um, someone's mother bringing you a box and yeah. her own story. So you you <laughs> you take away her story and uh, or you you marginalize her story, which. Um, yeah, it, it, uh, it imparts a lot of methodological problems. Um, what are some of your favorite things in the archive? Like when you when you look at things, what makes the puts the biggest smile on your face to see? Oh, there's the guest book of Galaxan, one of the youth centers they arranged like the most of the concerts all the the big bands came there and and there's this guest book with um you know the polaroid pictures the instant pictures they took one picture of each band that came to play during like one or maybe two years time and then the band got to write a greeting on their side of the book and it's quite cute <laughs> i like it a lot but then of course i i think the so that's that's one thing that you like show people that come because it's fun to 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 look at but then i like the you know the, the there's drawings and there's letters and all these photographs taken when the band went for tours, maybe traveling Europe for the first time and they visited all these, they're doing these touristy things and they're going to the beach and it's, I think it's, um, it tells something more than just, tells something about being a band and uh, going abroad for the first time, playing at different venues and, uh, but then we have also this, like the, the big t-shirts and uh, some trash guitars um, that are, that's like the, the things that we show visitors when they come and wants to see something from from the hardcore archive. Mm. What are uh, what are some of the uh, when we're looking at the animal rights and the uh, the vegan side of this movement? What are the kinds of archives that are items in your archive that tell stories about that particular component? Uh, to this movement? It's a lot of newspaper clippings. And mm -hmm. as I see it, that's like the, the picture of the moment that most of the folks living in Umeå and Sweden read about at that time. Uh, then we have the fanzines, and some of them are quite dedicated to animal rights uh, and I mean, sometimes in those 
fan scenes, uh, people are like, they're kind of posting for, searching for others who want to, to join them. And we're going there and we're going there to do this. Uh, and it's sometimes it's recipes and it's, yeah, the shows, they, they show kind of the, the young animal rights activists. Um, but we don't have, I mean, there are no, we don't have any like posters or, or no, no photographs from that time. Uh, I made a few interviews connected to this, uh, but it's mainly shown in the newspaper clippings and in, in some ways it would be great to have more interviews with, with that part of the movement, but it was, it was easier to get in contact with the, the musicians. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit more about the role of oral history in all of this when you may have an absence of physical uh, artifacts for a part of, of it, or the role of oral history in telling these stories. Were there, uh, where do you see the role of oral history in this, uh, in this archive? And is there some, is there anything unique about capturing the voices of people from this particular generation? Um, that you've observed observed in comparison maybe to other uh other movements that you've looked at the, uh, the oral history has been of great importance and i think it was necessary in in order to preserve the history of this kind of popular movement uh, since of course, they lacked the, the documents that we are used to. Uh, we needed a different approach. And by talking to people and by trying to talk to as much people as we could, uh, it could be a compliment to, it could be a compliment to, to the, donations that we got and to to the donations that we didn't have uh, so when uh, I mean all the stories that we we don't have in the in the photographs in the video clippings in the fan scenes hopefully someone in those interviews at least are talking about it instead we can ask them about it. And then of course you have to be aware of that you get, when I interview one person, I get that person's perspective and another one maybe will say something totally different. So, but as long as you're aware of that, you get like the history of each and one of them. It's, it's, uh, an important way and I think we, we have to 
work like that. And we also have to be aware of the ones that do not want to, to participate. Uh, because um, uh, we would have liked to talk to more girls involved in the scene, but uh, we had a problem to find persons that wanted to participate. Uh, but of course, there were a lot of girls in the scene. There were bands, they were in the audience, uh, but they don't, they aren't that visible in the archive, uh, maybe in some photographs of the audiences and so on, but, but um, yeah, but it, it was absolutely, it was an opportunity for us to collect something about youth culture. There's a lack of youth culture in the archive otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then of course, the, the people you, you asked me about uh, talking about talking to like get the, the history of these youngsters. But the one I talked to, they were adults at that time. So it was still in uh, retrospect. Even mm -hmm. though, of course, some of them were still active, but, but they were talking about the 90s. So it was like 15, 20 years later. Mm -hmm. But um, um, the Popular Movement Archive, I think we, also in the future, we, we will keep this in mind that we we can we can do those interviews when we when we're in lack of archivals when we know of a people's movements or an association but there's no documents left i think we'll keep on making those interviews instead if we just find the people to talk to as far as the voices that you feel as though uh, you're still looking for or that are kind of underrepresented, but that you know are there. Um, you were saying the voices of, of women and young girls is is something that was underrepresented um, in comparison to their actual participation. How do you how do you go about uh, finding them when you're presented those uh, those types of challenges? And uh, why do you think that was that their voices weren't as loud or that they were reluctant to participate? I don't know, because if I knew, I would have talked to them and asked them to. Of course, we wouldn't be. I wouldn't have asked you. <laughs> if, if uh, but uh, uh, speculate, take a no one. No one's no one's going to grade you on this on this answer. <laughs> Uh, we had a few girls that that uh, donated uh, stuff. I mean, there were uh, one from the donuts. She donated. She didn't leave us 
like the originals, but we, we got some digitized material. Um, and not only her, there were a few that they thought it was fun to participate. They wanted to tell us their story, but I think for some of I don't know. I don't think that it was because they were they're women. I don't. But but of course, talking to someone 20 years after something happened about something they did in their youth. It won't be, it won't, it's not necessarily like they're, they're going to like talking about it. Mm-hmm. Because that was something that happened 20 years ago, I think. Or maybe they want, don't want to be the, like the face of the women in hardcore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I don't know. No, I, actually, I, I, you, you brought up something interesting and just, I always kind of wonder about how the idea of the Yante Lovin, I always wonder about how that plays itself into uh, unique aspects of Swedish culture and into the way that people project themselves. And do you think that that may have a role uh, in this in some way um, of, yeah, do you, what, do you think that that may have something to do with it? Because it's a voice that is small uh, in comparison to others, that they would then have an outsized role of influence by being that voice. Um, do you think that may be a part of it too? Could be. Because, yeah, I think it could be. Uh, it takes something to easier to talk about something just to talk maybe about yourself but to to stand there and talk about a whole movement uh. <laughs> well, especially like an egalitarian movement as well too that yeah. it's mm-hmm. almost like meta in a way yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um sam do you want to do you want to jump in here yeah, um, I'm kind of curious um, in when we look at society in a broader context, uh, what is the importance of archives for people? Like for some people, they might be like, why is there this whole archive dedicated to this one particular thing in Sweden? Uh, well, when it comes to like the Umeå Hardcore Archive, uh, you have to think of the the hardcore scene during the 90s as, I mean, it was a big part of our local history. Mm-hmm. It affected many. And um, by affecting that, affecting that many people, uh, we think it's like, important to preserve and to show all the sides of that movement. Uh, by by studying different um, like people's 
the different popular movements or uh, it may say something about the society and that time that it was um, happening. Uh, I mean, if, and and when if you go, if you go now, if you look at the the hard archive, you'll see. Hopefully, you'll get uh, a lot of different perspectives of what happened. If we wouldn't have saved or preserved all of those things, maybe you would have just the reportings from the the media. And they told the story about um, the veganism and the animal rights movements. Uh, but then you you miss the the all the arrangements, the like the DIY thing, the mm -hmm. all the kids doing creative stuff, and. Mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, many people like my, I think, like my parents, they didn't have an idea that I don't think they could imagine that people outside of Sweden would have been interested in Umeå Hardcore. Mm -hmm. For them, it was something very local and they so what they read in the in the newspaper or what I told them. But by looking in, in the archive, uh, you see so much more. You can see how it put the Umeå like on the map. <laughs> you can meet people from other countries and they know where Umeå is because they heard of bands from the town. Uh, mm -hmm. Um, and as it comes to the to the food, I mean, from the beginning, they didn't serve vegetarian and vegan food. But now, when you have kids in like kindergarten, they can have vegetarian or vegan food. It's nothing strange about that. Mm -hmm. It's like the way it is. And yeah, I think since it affected on so many levels and uh, maybe by preserving this in archives will make it possible for people in the future to look at these uh, things and yeah maybe they look at it in, in other ways than we do now but the It will make it possible for them to to study this time and why why and what happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely would say over media reports and newspaper reports, you know, archives give us a really good insight into the more human aspect of of a time frame and. By that, I mean, you're actually reading physical documents of people who existed at that time, as opposed to the history of, you know, a larger uh, corporation or even government telling the stories. So it gives you 
a really good insight into the inner workings of, of even something as small as Zumia Hardcore that was actually quite big. Um, and its impact was huge, hugely influential throughout the world. And I don't think you would necessarily be able to get all that without looking into the nitty gritty details of all this personal correspondence between everyone. Mm. Yeah, and also when you talk about archives, we, I like to think of them as our, like our collective uh, memory. It can be our, the, the, the memory of the society. And if you, like if you preserve, in associations, if you preserve the protocols, if you preserve the documents where you found when people decided this or that, or, or, and then you can go like, to the source and see what actually happened instead mm -hmm. of just listening to people who say that, oh, well, it was like this, it was like that. You can go and you can read it by yourself and make your own opinion. Right. And that's something very important. Yeah. Um... I guess one final thing I'm really, really curious about is if the hardcore scene was not associated with the vegan and animal rights and straight edge movements, do you think it would have gotten the attention in Sweden that it did and con like consequently the world as well? Or do you think it's necessary that both were happening at the same time and happen to be a part of the same movement? I definitely, definitely think it got more attention because of it happened at the same time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Of course, I mean, they played the band. They played and maybe they have been on tours no matter what. But I don't think that it would have been such a big issue i mean it wouldn't have been something that you talked about around the dinner table if it wasn't for the that it was both the animal rights activism too mm -hmm. because that was a, a big thing everybody talked about the teachers talked about it they talked about about it at home and the like national national media reported about it so of course it, it brought and then the band they got attention because they were often connected to the things that happened connected to the the animal rights activism and when media reported they would gladly link the the, the bands to <laughs> the they weren't always right, of course, mm -hmm. but I think by writing about them, then, then they got, I mean, they got the attention at least. Mm -hmm. The band, <laughs> by not, yeah. maybe they didn't want it always, and they wanted to play their music. I don't know, but but um, uh, since since. Since the, I mean, this, you know, this saying that uh, attention can be good, even if it's like bad stuff. 
telling mm-hmm. about, you, you know, you're, you're, yeah, it's still a, t- uh, yeah, publicity is still, publicity, yeah, no matter what. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So even though they were wrong when they made those uh, different, uh, when they made those connections in, in uh, the newspapers, they got publicity. That was the thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess I'm always curious because Sweden is on the forefront of veganism and vegetarianism. Was this kind of the, was this the catalyst that really catapulted it throughout the country or was this something that was coming in Sweden regardless of this movement pushed it? I don't know. Uh, I personally, I, I can just guess, but I think it's at least it wouldn't have gone that fast without the, the moment. Mm-hmm. Because from a lot of things happened in like 10 years from it being quite difficult to, to find uh, vegetarian food on restaurants to it being everywhere. But of course, as sooner or later, I'm, I'm sure it would have been here. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, I think what some other folks have have said to us in conjunction with this same question too is that there are aspects of like uh political economy that made that occurred around the same time that allowed this movement to be at the forefront of the vegetarian and vegan movement um uh whether it's uh political changes or the fact that the economy was more open to importing these kinds of things from other mm. places, which could be, uh, you know, a result of European Union expansion. Uh, it could be trade policy. Um, and the fact that that was also occurring in the United States too, and it was occurring in other places mm. that Sweden may have been looking for cultural uh, ideas from too. So, uh, so Suzanne, I'm, I'm, I'm getting out of the train station in Umeå. I'm ready to go to the archive, um, or I'm, uh, you know, doing some more research for this uh, story and I want to check everything out online. Um, where can I go in person and where can I go online to learn more about this movement? Well, you can always come and visit the archive and take part of all of the archivals, but the, then many of those who donated their collections to the archive did this with the intention that others easily would have access to them. They actually asked me when they donated it if we were going to like put it on the shelves or if we were going to publish it and make it available for others because otherwise they wouldn't give it to us. So we we started a site um, .se, um, where we have published as much as we could publish, but we are limited by copywriting and the general data protection regulation. Um, but we felt that it was important for those who are interested in the archive to be able to access this no matter where they are, even if they wouldn't want to go to Umeå. And um, so, even if just 
as I said, you, you have to lift it up to have take part of the whole collection uh, because we haven't been able to digitize everything. Um, but through the the website uh, researchers and others that are interested in taking part of the archive archive material uh, they can go to the to the website and i think it's a it's it's a good option we have hundreds of photographs and um, clippings and you know the um, the guest book from galaxian that i told you about earlier it's all there mm -hmm. Awesome. Cool. Cool. Susan, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you for me. Thanks to Suzanne Odell for discussing her work at the Umeå Hardcore and Popular Movement Archive. Check out the episode notes where you'll find a link to the Popular Movement's website and a Spotify playlist companion for this series. If you've not already listened to parts one and two, you can find them on our website at scorchedhundra.com slash heavyhops. Part four of our Umeå Hardcore series airs on April 9th. Be sure to join us then. Mm -hmm.